Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we have together to draw near to you and pray to you and seek you uh, through your word. God, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding that this word that we uh, look into tonight, God, would breathe life into us, Lord, that we would see ourselves for who we are and we would see you for who you are, God, and we would be changed forever because of it. Lord, we know that your word is living and powerful and life-changing, life-changing, transforming, God, and we ask that you would uh, allow us to have spiritual eyes to, to see um, these words uh, change us. So we love you. Pray that your spirit would move in power and bless this time together. In your name, amen. All right. So, uh, last couple of chapters, if you remember, last few chapters, uh, the people in distress, they ask Samuel for a king. Now, back in chapter 7, they were just delivered by God. They repented. Everything was going good. Uh, some years passed by. They asked for a king. Samuel ultimately says, by asking for a king, you've rejected God as your king. Okay, so that's still the theme that's going on. But we know back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, 9 and 10, really, uh, King Saul was appointed, the first king of Israel. And we see in chapter 10 how Saul responded to God's calling on his life. In fact, he pretty much rejected it, right? He hid from the calling, literally hid from the calling of God. So we know this isn't a man, a man after God's own heart. In fact, there's nothing mentioned in regards to Saul and his relationship with God because it was absent. Okay, so this is the king that's now now in power. But we see a question posed at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 10, and it's this, when King Saul is appointed king, uh, some of the rebels say, how can this man save us? How can he save us? And what we see in chapter 11 is that this question is answered. This man will save you only because of the power of the spirit, right? There was this man of the Ammonites named Nahash that threatened the people, surrounded the people of Jabesh Gilead. And what had happened was he told them that if they would surrender to him and pluck out their eye, then he would uh, allow them to be free. But that was the consequence for uh, them making a covenant with him. And we discussed uh, the fear of man and how Israel was so afraid of man and how we too can be afraid of man and what that looks like practically in our life. But we weren't just introduced to the fear of man. We were also introduced to the power of God. And that's where that question is answered again. Saul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to overcome the Ammonites in this setting. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel is going to address Israel and he's going to try to enlighten the eyes of their understanding. He's going to try to get them to see something that he's trying to, he's been trying to tell them for the last few chapters, but they've been blind to it. They've been completely blind to it. Now we see the way that Samuel communicates and on top of that, something God does, a miraculous thing, the people are finally able to see their sin for what it really is. Is. They're going to see themselves for who they are. And as I prayed, they're also going to see God for who he is, which brings me to the title of this teaching, a pattern of man's rebellion and God's deliverance, a pattern of man's rebellion and God's deliverance. Long title. There's long points tonight too. There are reasons for it. 
So we're going to see this pattern that Samuel reveals to the people, how they continue to rebel time and time again. Yet God, because he's so gracious and so merciful, he continues to deliver them time and time again. Let's go to the text in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, now Samuel said to all Israel, indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. Samuel says, I've heeded your voice. It wasn't Samuel's voice that asked for a king. It was the people's voice in Samuel as the leader in humility submitted to the people's voice because God, the father told them to essentially what God was doing through Samuel was giving them over to their sin. He was giving them over to the desire of their hearts. See, sometimes you just need to give people over to their choices. Sometimes they're set in their ways. They're stubborn. They're stiff-necked. They're going to continue to go the route that you know they shouldn't go. This is where Samuel's at. He's pleaded with them, don't go this route. But nevertheless, he gives them over to this decision of theirs, ultimately because he knows The only way they're going to learn their lesson is through the consequences of their decision. There's no more pleading with them. He has to give them over. We see this character quality with Samuel. We also see this character quality with God the Father. We see it actually throughout the last few chapters that we've looked at. He's given the people over. He even warned them. These are going to be the consequences for having this king, for asking for this king. But you're not going to learn your lesson until you face the consequences. So Samuel says, I've heeded your voice in asking for a king. First Samuel chapter. 12 verse 2 and now here is the king walking before you and i am old and gray-headed and look my sons are with you i have walked before you from my childhood to this day here i am witness against me before the lord and before his anointed whose ox have i taken or whose donkey have i taken or whom have i cheated whom have i oppressed or whom or from whose hand have i received any bribe with which to blind my eyes. I will restore it to you. Okay, so what we see uh, that's happening here in these verses is that Samuel is essentially passing the baton off to King Saul. He says, I was your leader. He's he's very old at this point. He doesn't have any many more years left in him and he's passing over the baton. He's passing his authority to King Saul. Now, this is something admirable, admirable about Samuel. He wasn't competing for leadership. He wasn't competing for it. Leadership wasn't something that he was trying to attain. It was something that he held with a loose hand. He said, if God doesn't want me the leader anymore, and he wants King Saul, then, then so be it. Godly leaders, they don't fight for position. They accept whatever position the Lord gives them. If it's a season of leadership, if it's a season of not leading, whatever it is, it's not something that they're seeking. It, the position isn't something that they're seeking. They're accepting whatever position the Lord gives them in that season. We see that with Samuel. Later on, we'll see it with David and Absalom. He's ready to give over the kingdom to Absalom if God wants that. This is a character quality of a godly leader. Look what he says. We'll reread some of this in verse 2 and 3. He says, I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. Basically what he's saying, if you remember, his sons became judges, and Samuel wrongfully appointed them as judges, and we see those sons were corrupt. So what Samuel is saying here, my sons are with you, is they're not on this platform with me in this leadership position. You asked for me to take them out of leadership, I took them out of the leadership, and they're with you. They're amongst the people, they're not in leadership. So he's saying, I did what you asked concerning my sons, my 
my sons are with you. He also says here, the end of verse 2, I've walked before you from my childhood to this day. The idea of walked before you in the Hebrew is that of a shepherd amongst his sheep. He says, he's saying, I've, I've tended to you. I've taken care of you. My heart was always for you. It wasn't for this position. It wasn't so I could be a judge. I did this for my love for the Lord and my love for you. He says, I walked amongst you. I shepherded you. That's basically what he's saying here. And then he goes into verse three. He says, here I am, witness against me. And he goes through all these scenarios and asks them, basically, have I done you any wrong? Have I ever wronged you? And then he says, if so, if yes to any of these, I will restore it. Basically, he's saying in humility, he's not just trying to prove himself as a righteous leader. He's saying, hey, if there's something that I did that I don't know about it, that about uh, before I pass, before I die, I want to make things right. In humility, he's giving the people the chance to come to him and say, hey, is there any bitterness? Is there any resentment towards me? Because I don't want to leave this earth with conflict unsettled. Again, speaking of Samuel's humility. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 4. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. The people basically are saying, you are a godly, righteous leader, Samuel. Then verse 5, then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. The people are witnesses that I've been righteous. The Lord is a witness and the king is a witness that I've led you to the best of my abilities. Everyone in including the Lord God, agreed that Samuel was a great leader, okay? So look what happens, verse 6. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. So what Samuel does is he doesn't just point to the fact and pose the question as to whether or not he was a good leader. He he points to the truth that yes, he never did anything bad and God's never done anything anything but good to the people. He's saying he provided for you. He protected you. He delivered you. And this is where the main point of this text starts to hit home. It's here in verse seven, stand still that I may reason with you. Samuel wants to reason with them so that they see the big picture of the pattern of their behavior. Okay. And this is point number one, long point, see the big picture regarding the pattern of your behavior. See the big picture regarding the pattern of your behavior. That's what he's trying to get across. He's inviting them. I want to reason with you. I want you to understand this. Why? Because he's told them multiple times and they didn't listen. He's like, I need you to see the path that you're going down. So he desires to reason with him. And Samuel isn't just doing this because he has a great idea. Samuel is doing this because he's a prophet led by the Lord. This is something that God does. God will invite us to reason with him so that we can understand the pattern of our behavior. This isn't the only time it's mentioned in scripture. Let me show you in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. God says, come now and let us reason together. 
says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. He says, let us reason together. You are sinners and you're hopeless sinners and you keep rebelling. So me recognizing there's nothing you can do about it. I'm going to do something, says the Lord. Though your sins are are like scarlet, I'm going to wash them white as snow. I'm going to intervene and do something about your sin because I know apart from you, me, you can't repent of these things. See, just like in Isaiah, the people keep falling back into the same things, the same pattern, and God wants to reason with them. So that they will understand their need for God. That he's the only way that they can be forgiven of their sins. But not only that. That they would also realize he's the only way that they can experience freedom in this life. Through obedience to him. And he later talks about that in Isaiah chapter 1, 19 and 20. We won't get into it for time's sake. But the point is. Sometimes we don't see the big picture regarding the pattern of our behavior. Do you find yourself falling back into the same things over and over and over again? Now, some of you, some of us might see that pattern and go, man, I I can't believe I keep falling back into these things. But the people weren't there yet. The people didn't see it. They, They weren't aware of the fact that they kept falling back into these things. So Samuel is going to make this argument, reason with them so that they can see the pattern of their behavior. Do you see the pattern of your behavior as God sees it? If it's sinful, if it's rebellious like these people. The good news is that there's a solution to derail us from this pattern. That there's a solution to get us back on the right track. And Samuel's going to reveal to us through the solution. Ultimately, it's receiving God's grace and choosing to walk in obedience. And that's where he's going to start. Look what he says. In First Samuel chapter 12. The end of verse 7. That I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. We're going to look at the righteous acts of God and how he's bestowed grace on you time and time again. And we're going to look at some interesting righteous acts of God that uh, initially we might not think that's not a righteous act of God. But big picture, we'll see that it actually was a righteous act of the Lord. So let's start with it. The the grace of God, the righteous acts of God. He gets into it, picking it up in verse 8. Here comes the... The pattern, and I'll just forewarn you, the pattern is essentially this. The Israelites get into trouble, they cry out to God, God delivers them, and they forget God and start worshiping idols again. Only to be delivered up to their consequences so they turn back to God. That's going to be the pattern that we look at here. But let's look at it in the way that Samuel communicates it. In verse 8, when Jacob had gone into Egypt... And your fathers cried out to the Lord. Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them well in this place. So he's saying way back when, when your family was in bondage to the Egyptians, when they were in slavery for over 400 years, when they cried out to God, God delivered them and he delivered them through who they delivered them through Moses and Aaron. And they brought you out of Egypt. See, God's deliverance was one of his righteous acts. Okay, moving on. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. 
And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king, king of Moab, and they fought against them. Okay, so God delivers them out of Egypt, right? He answers their prayer, their cry for help, and what happens? God delivers them to the promised land, and they forget about God. So instead of delivering him from bondage, he delivers them what? Back to bondage. He delivers them as slaves, if you will, to these kings over many years. These hardships come time and time again because they continue to forget God. And that's our tendency as well. Our tendency when everything is going good is to forget God. Why do I need God when I have everything I need? And we can forget the Lord. That's what ha- was happening with the Israelites. So he sold them. It says he literally sold them into the hand of Sisera. Sisera. I don't know how you say that, but I'm just guessing. Sisera. What a name. Sisera. <laughs> Bet he got made fun of quite a bit. No, probably not. He's a king. Brutal man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, they, they deliver him, like literally sold them into the hand. So he delivers them from their bondage of sin, but they choose a life of sin. So he gives them over to their bondage of sin again, delivers them from bondage. Then he delivers them back into the bondage because that's what they ultimately chose because they forgot the Lord. And that seems to be the tendency with us. When we forget the Lord, when we're not pursuing God, when we're good where we're at, life's all good, I don't need to seek God, I every, have everything that we have, that I need, then the Lord will allow us to face hardship. He'll allow us to be back in bondage to the sin that He delivered us from. See, these difficult times were the righteous acts of God as well. We look at this, delivered them as slaves. That's like, man, that was, that was mean of God. But no, that was a righteous act of God. That was God's grace. He wanted to show them that if they continue to choose a life apart from him, they're choosing to be in bondage. They're choosing to be a slave, a slave to sin. Look what happens. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. Things go and they get hard. And, and then what do the people do? They, they cry out to the Lord. And that's so true for us. The more difficult circumstances we find ourselves in, more often uh, are those the times that we pray the most. When we find ourselves in difficult situations, as the people did, that's when we're constantly crying out to God. And God allows us to be in those difficult circumstances. Why? So that we will cry out to God. And we wonder why life is hard sometimes. We wonder why life is hard. I wonder if it wouldn't be so hard if we were always crying out to God. Would he need to put us through these hard situations? We know in the world we will have tribulations, but I think a lot of it we bring on on ourselves because of sin and walking in rebellion just like the Israelites. This is point number two. You've heard me say this before. We don't realize God is all we need until God is all we have. We don't realize God is all we need until God is all we have. That's where the people are at. They have nothing left. They've been delivered as slaves once again. They're in bondage to their sin. They realize their need for God. And so sadly, but so often that's the case for us. We have to go through these hard, difficult times where we lose next to everything before we realize God is all we need. Now look at what the people did. 
They cried out and they acknowledged their sin. They confessed. Look what their sin was. We have forsaken the Lord, verse 10, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. See, when they weren't running to God, they were running to idols. And so often that can happen for us as well. When, when times are, when times are, are easy, when life is easy, there's room for idolatry. I'll pick up a little bit of this. I'll pick up a little bit of that. But when life is hard, so often we turn back to God because we realize our need for Him. They got too much time on their hands and their easy life. So they keep continuing to go back to these gods. They're not running to God. They're running to the little G gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So they say, but now deliver us, verse 10, from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. Conditional service. Deliver us and we'll serve you. And God, what would he say? No, serve me and I'll deliver you. If you want to be delivered, then you got to be my servant because this was the problem. They would cry out for deliverance and God would deliver them. But after God delivered them, they'd forget God. They'd go back to the bondage of their sin. And we know you're either a slave to sin or you're either a slave to righteousness, right? No matter what you think in this world, freedom is false, okay? You're either a slave to yourself, being a slave to sin, or you're a slave to Christ. The only thing close to freedom we can ever experience is being a slave to Christ. The the mindset of freedom that we have is, oh, I can do whatever I want and I can dibble dabble in this and dibble dabble in that. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to yourself. The Lord says, if you want to be free, you got to be a slave to me. That was the problem with the people. They wanted to be uh, delivered. And they said, conditionally, if, if, if you deliver us, then we'll serve you. What they didn't get is this pattern wouldn't work. The cycle needed to be broken. They had to choose. I'm going to serve God no matter what. And I'm going to recognize I'm going to live a life of deliverance through my service of God. It has to happen in that order. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel. Bedin, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. Okay, so the Lord sent the judges. Okay, all these are judges except the uh, Bedan guy. Uh, he was probably a recognized historical leader, uh, but we don't see him in the book of Judges. The, re- the rest of these guys are listed as judges. The point is that even when these people faced hard times, It says in Judges, when the people didn't have a leader, when they didn't have a judge, they kept falling back into idolatry. But when God would appoint a leader over them, then they'd be on the right track again. So God was appointing leaders over them, not to just deliver them from their enemies, but to to deliver them from their sins. This was another righteous act of God, God appointing spiritual leadership over the people. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. This was the last trial that took place in the last chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 11. That's what we talked about last week. But there's something different. In the past, they'd be in bondage or threatened by man. And what would they do? They would cry out to God. 
This time they take it to the next level. This time they don't even cry out to God. They cry out for a king. They literally cry out for a man. He's like, you're at a whole new low. At least before when your enemies would come against you, you would cry out to God. Now you're not even crying out to God. Now you're crying out to a man to deliver you. See, the people, they were trusting in their own way of deliverance, their own means of deliverance. This king that I can perceive in my head, he will be the one that can deliver us. He can be the one that can take care of us. I don't know if God can do it anymore. And sometimes we'll do this as well. We'll put trust in an alternative method other than God to deliver us. And we can do it through people, putting our hope in a person, putting our hope in a system, putting our hope in a religion, putting our hope in a program. But the truth of the matter is that if we put our hope in anything other than the Lord, it's going to be a hope that disappoints. Only the king of kings can deliver us. And that's what Samuel is desperately trying to get across to the people. Saul didn't deliver them in the last chapter. It was God working through Saul that delivered them. So he says, you've, you've taken it to a new low. You're not even coming to God anymore. You're worshiping man. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 <clears throat> Now, therefore, here is the king you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. In other words, God gave you what you asked for. He gave you what you wanted, but he didn't give you what you needed. He gave you the king that you desired, but he didn't give you the king that's actually going to deliver you from the things you need to be delivered from. And this can take place in our lives as well. We can keep asking and asking and asking for certain things, praying persistently. And if those things aren't according to God's will, just because they're not according to God's will doesn't mean that he won't answer them. Sometimes God will give us over to our desires. We see that in Romans chapter one. We see it throughout the text here. God will give us over to those things again so that we'll realize the error of our ways by facing the consequences. So eventually we'll turn back to God. He's saying, I gave you the king that you asked for, but this is not the king that you need. And sadly, but surely and truly, you're going to find this out. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. Okay, this seems like, duh. Okay, if you if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, then you'll be following God, right? It's like, yeah, that makes sense. But the reason Samuel is communicating it is why? They had this pattern of behavior again. They would rebel against God. They would forget God. Then God would deliver them to sin. Then they'd cry out to God. And then God would deliver them once again in this nasty pattern. The problem was they weren't being obedient to God. They weren't consistently following God. They were inconsistent in their relationship with the Lord. Are you inconsistent with your relationship with the Lord? Is it come to God when I need this or come to God when I need that? Or yeah, like, you know, I get in the word here and there, like when I really need something or I'm in a bind or like, yeah, uh, my relationship with the Lord, it's like on the side thing. And it happened once a week, happens once a week when I come to service or is it a, a daily act, a, a daily commitment, a daily surrender to follow the Lord? Cause that's what he's getting at. If you continue to serve me, if you continue to obey me, then you'll continue to follow follow me. And he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, if you continue to obey me, I'll deliver you from all your enemies. Why? He doesn't want that conditional service. 
He says, if you continue to obey me, then you'll continue to follow me. It's not about your enemies. It's about following the Lord, your God, following whether, following him, whether you need to be delivered or you've already been delivered. They were inconsistent with their relationship with the Lord. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. It's basically saying, make a decision today. As Joshua said, who are you going to follow? Are you going to obey God? Are you going to follow God? Are you going to keep falling back into the same things, following other gods, just as your fathers did? Jesus says this in John chapter 15. If you want to write it down, John 15, verse 14, he says, you're my friends if you do what I tell you. You're my friends if you do what I say. That's what the Lord says. I want to be a friend of God. He says, do what I'm asking you to do. If we're not doing what he's asking us to do, then how can we call ourselves friends of, of the Lord? See, the people, they weren't being friends of God because they constantly rebelled. Now, rebellion is, is like that of witchcraft, the Bible says. And it's basically uh, the initial sin where Satan rebelled against the Lord. We know it was rooted in pride, but there's so much wickedness that comes through rebellion. But rebellion, it's popular. It's popular amongst the world, especially it's very worldly. Rebel against authority, rebel against God. Do what you think you want to do. Relativism, relativism, whatever you think is right, do that. It's, there's no absolute truths and what people start doing is forming their own path. But what they don't realize they're doing is that they're making themselves an enemy of God. In James chapter four, verse four, it says that. It says to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God and to be in rebellion is to be a friend of the world. So we can't be an enemy of God and a friend of God at the same time. It's one or the other. That's why he gives them these two options. Either you obey God and follow him or you're not his friend. You're his enemy. You can continue to rebel, but don't call yourselves a friend of God. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 16. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So basically what Samuel is doing is he's praying for a sign, but we have to understand why Samuel is praying for a sign. Samuel has communicated some similar things already to the Israelites and what happened? It didn't get through their thick skulls. So what is he going to do? I know I need to show them something. God needs to demonstrate his power to confirm my word. This was for the people. It was not for Samuel. These people needed a sign to listen to what God has to say. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 16 that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, it's not always bad to like ask God to confirm something to you, but what he was getting at is there was this mentality with the Israelites that they were constantly seeking a sign. In other words, they were constantly seeking what God could do for them instead of remembering what God has already done for them. They weren't seeking the Lord for himself. They were seeking the Lord for what he could do for them next, right? And the Lord parted the Red Sea. He provided manna. He provided water supernaturally from a rock. He did all these amazingly fantastic, miraculous works. And it says in Hebrews chapter three and four that they didn't believe 
They didn't trust in other words. The signs weren't going to make them trust anymore. But Samuel is going to ask God to give them a sign so that they'll at least trust the words that are coming out of Samuel's mouth. And the time period is important in verse 17. It says, is today not the wheat harvest? Now, the wheat harvest was typically right before Passover and the rainy season, the latter and former rain, this would have been the former rainy season, would have already happened. And the former rainy season uh, was important for the growing of crops, specifically uh, wheat in this time period. But during the wheat harvest, there wasn't typically rain. There wasn't typically thunder. So this would have been a very unique thing. Even to this day, Israel goes through a long time period where there is no rain. That's called their summer. Okay, so this would have been like a way off the charts, like this doesn't happen during this time period, during the wheat harvest. But what would this reveal? This would reveal the Lord's power. It would reveal his judgment. This also would potentially destroy their crops. If it rained during the harvest, it could destroy their crops. But the reason God is doing this is to confirm the words of Samuel. And God indeed is going to do this. Now, Samuel... As I somewhat mentioned, he, he wasn't testing God, okay? Samuel wasn't testing God. He wasn't doing this for himself. He wasn't doing this to solidify his authority. He was doing this to solidify God's authority, that his words truly were from God so that the people would hear. A lot of times people will pray these big prayers to test God. Uh, I want a sign because I want to know that you're real, okay? And God can do that sometimes, But this isn't the heart behind why Samuel is asking him to do this. Samuel isn't struggling with faith. The people are. So he asks for a sign for the people so that they would trust God and his word. Now it says, verse 18. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So the Lord answered his prayer. Why? Because Samuel was attempting to glorify God through this prayer. And God would be glorified through this prayer. And we see how the people respond. They have fear. Great fear of the Lord. They're going, oh shoot. Everything Samuel said was true. We deserve to die. And that's what they're going to say in the next verse. Look what happens. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. They see that this first prayer was answered by Samuel. So if Samuel asked for God to deliver them, then that may be answered as well. Like this dude's prayers, God answers. Okay, I'm gonna ask this guy to pray for me that we won't die. And why are they saying we are going to die? Because they know that they deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But it's not just that they understand generally they should die. They recognize their specific sin and asking for a king. That's the primary issue that Samuel is bringing up. See, they didn't, re- they didn't realize it before. Even when God warned them through Samuel, hey, this guy is not going to be the guy you think he is. He's going to be corrupt. He's going to take everything from you. He's going to take, take, take from you. They wouldn't listen to God's words. So God had to use the storm. And he used the storm to expose their sins so that they could see it for what it really is. Point number three, storms expose our sins. Storms expose our sins. If it was just the words, they wouldn't have got it. 
He said similar things in the past. It took this storm for them to really realize what their sin was. God used the storm to convince the people to see their sin how he saw it. Not how they see it, how he saw it. I see it exactly how Samuel is communicating it. So often we won't turn from our sin until we see our sin as God sees it. Why? Because we'll justify it. See, it's not that bad. It's really not that big of a deal. You know, this one's a questionable one. It's like the Bible isn't even clear on this one. It's a gray area. I know I'm convicted about it, but I'm going to do it anyways. It's like, wait a minute. Are you seeing that how God sees it? Or, or is there a, a disconnect there? And so, so often when we have that mentality, God will bring storms into our life to convince us of the truth, to see it how he actually sees it. He uses the storms to reveal to us the magnitude of our sins, specifically the sins that we justify as the people justify their sin. See, storms could be anything. They could be hardships. They can be trials, tribulations, a difficulty in life of, of any sort, a tragedy, a fatality. It could be anything. And we know that's not the only reason God uses sins, but we see that's a big reason and why, sorry, not sins, storms. Uh, we see that's a big reason why God uses storms throughout the scripture to get our attention, to wake us up. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Let me read it from you. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He shouts to us in our pains. And storms are painful. They're, they're scary. But he needs to do that. Why? Because he already tried whispering. He already tried talking. Maybe it was through someone else. Maybe it was through the word. Maybe it was through a message. Maybe it was through prayer or worship. Whatever the avenue was, the still small voice wasn't working. Whatever the case may be. So he starts to get louder and he gets as loud as he has to be until that thing starts to change. Why? Because he loves us and he w- doesn't want us to continue going down this path for the Israelites. It was this rebellious path. He'll do whatever he needs to do to get our attention because he loves us that much. Storms, they reveal our sins. Now, we see this other times in scriptures We'll talk about two other times here in a second. But in Matthew chapter four, do you remember? Jesus puts the disciples on a boat, right? And, and he leads them into a storm. We see this storm is like no other storm they've ever seen. He's sleeping at the stern of the boat perfectly in peace. Why? Because he can control these things, right? He's God and he trusts his father. Anyways, we see the disciples, they start freaking out. They go, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? We see fear in them. We see anxiety. We see a lack of trust, a lack of peace so many different sins come out of them god used the storm to reveal those sins in them you guys aren't trusting me but he also doesn't just use the storm to reveal to them something about themselves the anxiety the fear all these different things he also used the storm to reveal something about himself that he is powerful he is sovereign he's worthy to be trusted he can be trusted and it says they went from fear of the storm to fear of the lord and that's what's happening here in this text The storm made them afraid, but they weren't just afraid of the storm. It says they were afraid of the Lord. They greatly feared the Lord. Look what happens. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, sorry, verse 20. Then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Look what he says. 
Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. It sounds like a misprint. You've done all this wickedness, so don't fear. Doesn't it seem like it should be, you've done all this wickedness, you should be afraid, right? But it speaks of the grace of God. Do not fear. You've done all this wickedness, but I'm going to have grace on you. This is like, what? They see their sin for what it is, but God also welcomes them into the arms of grace. Don't fear. You don't have anything to be afraid of because I, I love you. I just want you to see this stuff for what it really is. God's grace is incomprehensible, says Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside, meaning don't turn back to idols. Don't turn to the left or the right. Continue to follow the Lord. See, God didn't just use this storm to expose their sins. He used this storm to redirect them. Okay, point number four. Storms redirect us towards deliverance. Storms redirect us towards deliverance. He wasn't just using the storm to expose their sin and produce that fear in them. He was also using the storm to point them to the solution. You don't have to be afraid. Your only solution to overcome the sin is to come to me. And so often God will use storms in our lives to to redirect us. He'll use storms because we're going down the wrong path. I was just teaching uh, Jonah on uh, on Monday, so this is kind of fresh. I actually put this in here before I studied for that teaching. Funny. Uh, anyways, uh, we see with Jonah, right? Everybody knows the story. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel against them, but he hated the people. This would be like going and preaching to ISIS, literally. These people were horrible people, and they were enemies of God's people. They killed Jews all the time. He says, I want you to preach to them. He's like, I know you're going to have grace on them. You're going to have mercy on them. I don't want to do it. So he runs and he tries to flee to Tarshish. And what happens? God sends a storm. And we can look at that storm like, oh man, God's punishing him. That storm was God's grace. God sent the storm to redirect him. Because this wasn't just about Jonah going to Nineveh so all the people of Nineveh would be saved. This was for Jonah's discipleship. He needed to go to Nineveh so that God could purge him of racism. So that God could purge him of lack of grace. He was good to receive the grace, right? When he was in the belly of the whale and he cried out for God. And God delivered him through the big fish, the whale. We don't know what it was. Anyways, we see that he was quick to receive the grace, but he wasn't quick to extend it and have mercy and compassion on these people that were also in rebellion against God. So God sent this storm to redirect him to ultimately deliver him from his sin. He doesn't just bring the storms to reveal our sins. He brings the storms to deliver us from our sins. So he points him to the direction. It's not enough that you just know what your sin is. He points them to this solution. Don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Verse 21. And do not turn aside from then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver for they are nothing. He's emphasizing what he means by turn aside. Quit running after idols. They're going to do you a lot of harm and no good. Why? Because storms don't always turn us to God. Sometimes storms turn people away from God. Sometimes really difficult things happen in people's life and they run away from God. They want nothing to do with them. So a storm isn't like the ultimate solution to turn people to God. It is a solution to help us recognize our need for God, but some people don't choose that and God won't intercede on our free will. He won't intervene on our free will, if you would. 
So storms can sometimes turn us to God, but storms can also sometimes turn us to idols. They can turn us to our comfort, the things that we think that will deliver us, but they absolutely won't. And that's what Samuel's saying here. Don't turn back to those idols. They cannot deliver you. Only the Lord can't. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. The Lord will not forsake his people for his name's sake, not for their name's sake, not because they're worthy. He does it for his name's sake. In 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, 2 Timothy 2.13 says this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself can't deny himself it's like there's certain things that god actually can't do he can't break character he can't do anything that contradicts his character but he's only limited by his own limitations because he refuses to break character he is faithful even if we're faithless why he won't deny himself he's not doing this for israel's name's sake because Israel carries the name of the lord it's because of the lord's name's sake that's why he's doing what he's doing and it says because it pleased the lord to make you his people god isn't always pleased with his people but he always finds pleasure with his people why because he loves his people see we might mess up we might fall short in fact it's pretty much guaranteed that we all will and will continue to here and there there is the opportunity the power of the spirit to deliver us and uh, walk in righteousness but the truth being there's times that we're faithless right But the Lord, he takes pleasure in his people, not because of what we do, but because we're his. First John chapter three, verse one, John says this. And like, we don't do credit to it in the, in the the English language, but in the Greek, it's like profound. It says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. When he says, behold, he's like, I can't even believe this. Like, this is incomprehensible. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we, he would call us his children. Like he takes pleasure in us, not because of what we do, but again, because of whose we are, we're his. He loves us so much. It's not for the people's sake. It's for the Lord's sake. But he also says he takes pleasure in them. It pleased him to choose them. Verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord and ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and right way. Samuel doesn't say, dude, I've had it. I'm, I'm old in age. I'm going to kick back. Like I can't deal with you people anymore. Like you don't listen to anything I say. I'm just going to take my retirement and watch you guys destroy yourselves. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to continue to pray for you. In fact, it would be a sin for me not to pray for you. He knew the responsibility that God had given him, that God had entrusted to him, these people that don't always please him, but he always takes pleasure in them because they're his. He says, I won't stop praying for you and we got to remember samuel he's not doing this out of obligation he's doing this out of desire remember when we first saw him in the beginning of his ministry he's traveling all around visiting the people he didn't have to do that he did that because he wanted to do that he actually cared for the people he says it'd be a sin against me besides i love you people he loves the people he's not going to stop praying for him and not only that he's praying for him because he knows 
If he just teaches them and he doesn't pray for them, the words aren't going to stick. He knows that he needs to pray for them for God to open their hearts because he's been preaching a lot to them and they haven't got it. Now they respond to this storm, but they know the hope is that they'll respond even more so to the prayers of Samuel. If he's combining the prayer and the teaching, it's going to stick. Something's going to stick. But then he goes on to say, verse 23, but I will teach you the good and right way. I'll continue to teach you, even though you're hard-headed, you're stubborn, you're not listening to anything I'm saying, I'm still going to teach you. We see this in many leaders, with many leaders in the Bible. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, this character quality, Paul tells uh, Timothy to teach with all long-suffering, um, so we see that, but we also see this, Paul, as an example of that teaching with all long suffering. Why long suffering? Because when you teach people anything, you guys know, anyone that has kids or anything, when you try to teach someone something and they're not getting it, it can be frustrating. So we need long suffering. We need patience. Why? Because the Lord is patient with us. He says in Philippians chapter three, verse one, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious. But for you, it is safe. (laughs) He's saying, though I've written similar things to you in the past, like uh, I'm going to keep doing it. It's not tedious for me. For you, it's safe. Okay. Obviously, you're not getting everything that I'm communicating to you. So I'm going to write it again because it's safe for you uh, is what Paul's saying. Again, he tells Timothy, teach with all long suffering. We see Jesus with the disciples. Like if Jesus would have given up on the disciples when they just weren't getting it, like there would be no disciples, right? He continued to long suffer with them he was patient with them he continued to teach them even in their stubbornness even in their hard-headedness and he does it with us He's so patient with us how many times does god tell us the same thing over and over and over again and it's like yeah i get it but i don't really get it i don't really understand or i get it but i'm not doing anything with it the lord is faithful to keep hammering home these same lessons. Samuel says, I will teach you the good and right way, or I'll continue to teach you these things. Verse 24, almost there. It says, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Now, this is my life verse right here. I absolutely love this verse, but for time's sake, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on it. Lord gave me this uh, when I was a baby Christian and just... Speaks so much to me. He says, only fear the Lord. Why? Because they had a fear of man, right? They were constantly afraid of man. Uh, last man being Nahash. They were afraid of what everybody thought. They were afraid of the power that man had over them. They're always looking at what are people going to think about me? He says, only fear the Lord. But he also says, serve him in truth with all your heart. Why? Because they were prone to fall back into serving idols, the Baals and the Ashtoreths and these other demonic gods that we see throughout the Old Testament. He says, only serve the Lord. Don't serve these other gods. Can't be, uh, uh, you can't, we, we talked about it. You can't be uh, a friend of God and an enemy of God at the same time. God also says, Jesus, in Matthew chapter six, you can't serve God and, and ma'am and you, you gotta choose one. We can't serve more than one God. He says, you'll either hate the one and love the other or love one and hate the other. And then he says, only for the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Don't serve him in light of what you think he's going to do for you and what you want him to do for you in the future. Serve him in light of what he's already done for you. Fifth and final point, serve God because he's already delivered you. 
Serve God because he's already delivered you. Remember, they kept coming back to God, crying out for deliverance, neglecting, forgetting the fact that he's delivered them time and time again. We don't serve God. We don't seek God for what he can do for us. We seek him for what he's already done for us. And not even necessarily personally. Yes, personally, he's done a lot of things for us, but I'm speaking specifically of the cross. Was the cross not enough? Is his grace not sufficient? But so often we come to the Lord with all these expectations. And yes, we can have great expectations uh, for a great God, but it's almost like this conditional service thing like we saw with the Israelites. And we can develop false expectations. Assume that God's going to do things that, that, that he's not. He's going to put us places that he won't. He's going to bless us with things that he might not. It's not about what he can do for us. It's about what he's already done for us. Verse 25. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Look what he says. If you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. We see the grace of God, right? We see his grace, but we also see his truth. Basically, what he's saying is if you step outside of the boundaries that I've created for you, then you can no longer expect me to protect you. Okay? If you continue to do wickedly and choose your own path, if that path is outside of my word, then you're on your own. I can't protect you there. I can protect you here, but I can't protect you there. If you continue to choose to do wickedly, you're going to be swept away by sin and by idols and all these different things. This warning was very clear. Because God knows the pattern of their behavior. He also knows the pattern of our behavior, the tendencies we have, the things that we sometimes continue to fall into. We sin, we face consequences, we cry out to God, God delivers us, life gets easy, we forget God, go back to the way things were. It's like, no, he's saying, don't, don't do that, don't have that mentality, we can't forget him because if we do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. We'll be swept back away into the consequences of sin, the consequences of idolatry if you find yourself in this vicious cycle and you can relate to the Israelites know that this cycle can be broken. The, the pattern doesn't have to continue. God's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his divine nature. He's given us the barriers and parameters and the protection of his word, the power of his spirit to live out the word. We don't have to fall into this pattern. There's power that's greater than this pattern. There's power to break this pattern. He says, you've been delivered. Walk like you're delivered. You've been freed. Choose to live within the barriers of freedom that he's given you. When we step outside of the barriers, he says, you'll be swept away again and having to cry out once again. And yeah, God might be there again, but why go through the unnecessary consequence of being swept back away into sin and idolatry? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, we know that we are so prone to be like the Israelites, God. We're, we're so prone to fall into these vicious cycles of, of, of repentance and going back to our sin and crying out to you and we face consequences. And Lord, we pray that you would break this pattern in our lives. Lord, that we would choose to, to live in the freedom that you've already given us. Lord, that we wouldn't fall back into the same old things, the same old pattern. It's disgusting. It's sickening. Lord, and and we suffer for it and you suffer for it. We know your heart breaks when we do these things, God. So I pray that you would give us the power of your spirit 
to see our sin for what it is. If it takes a storm, okay. But we pray that we would hear the still small voice. If we haven't heard it, God, we would see it and we would choose to to walk away from it. Lord, again, help us to walk in the freedom that you've given us. In your name, amen.